Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Now, this morning, um, Cliff, I'll need your help this morning. Um, well, I need his help every morning, but uh, we, we were all set to do this wirelessly today, but uh, we got kicked off the network here. So one of you grabbed my IP address. Would you give it back to me, please? Whoever went online and figured out our password and grabbed my IP address. Anyway, as I drive home uh, from church here, whether it's uh, anytime during the daytime, actually, and just as I head down south on I-5, Oh, uh, probably right about 160th, you kind of go down a hill before you get to 145th. And on a nice, uh, clear, and uh, beautiful day, uh, when there's no clouds and so on, it's just this beautiful, spectacular scene in Mount Rainier. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's just beautiful. And, you know, we live in an area that, uh, of course, is, uh, is so scenic, you know, with the mountains to the Cascades to the east and Olympics to the west. Um, go up north toward Everett, and you can see out toward Mount Baker and Mount Index and so forth. And uh, we really are pretty spoiled with that uh, beautiful scenery. When you have friends and family to come, for example, from the Midwest, every area's got their beauty. Um, when they come here from the Midwest, of course, one of the things that they really enjoy is the mountains. Uh, this scene of Mount Rainier from uh, downtown uh, by uh, uh, CenturyLink Field. Uh, it's just a beautiful, spectacular view. Mountains, um, you know, are, are just, uh, I've never done any mountain climbing. I do have some pastor friends like Pastor Ken Farman who enjoy that. Uh, when Teresa was in uh, China last week and, and uh, Sharon and, and Grant, uh, this is one of the scenes they saw uh, near Shangri-La, I think it was, as they were on one of their tours. And uh, Teresa took this picture, and uh, that's all the mountains, the beautiful mountains in, uh, in China, in, in central, kind of south-central China. Uh, they, were, they were up high. I think they were up at 7,000 feet just where they were. And uh, it's really uh, beautiful. In Israel, mountains in the Bible, the mountains uh, play a pretty prominent theme. You think of some of the key events that took place at mountains. Mount Sinai, of course, in the uh, Sinai Peninsula, um, this is the traditional site of Mount Sinai, and that's because we don't know exactly 100% sure, you know, they didn't keep very good AAA maps in those days, you know. Um, but this is the traditional site, and if it's, not, if it's not the site, it was similar to this. And this is, the, this is the, the typical mountain scene in the Sinai Peninsula, where, of course, Moses uh, received the Ten Commandments, where the people gathered around the mountain, the whole nation of Israel on their journey to the promised land. Um, in Mount uh, Hermon, uh, it looks a little bit more like the mountains we're used to up in northern Israel, uh, ranged with, this, does get snow, snow cap at times of the year. And uh, Mount Hermon, of course, figures prominently in the Bible stories. Uh, Mount Carmel, which we considered in our stories in the Old Testament last summer. Um, uh, again, sort of a a rocky, um, just a, a precipice, you know, up, rising up from... Have you ever been to the Palm Springs, Rancho Mirage, Palm Desert area? If you've ever been down there and you look to the west and you see that mountain range to the west all around you, those are the very similar to the mountains that you see 
in, uh, in uh, Israel, in Judea, and in near the Dead Sea and so on, Mount Carmel. The Sermon on the Mount took place, you, wouldn't, you probably, living in the Northwest, you probably wouldn't call that a mountain, right? Now, if you lived in the Midwest, you would probably call that a mountain, okay? But uh, the Sermon on the Mount took place on a large hillside, we might say, at a very beautiful uh, scenic place overlooking the Sea of Galilee. That's the northern, northwest uh, corner of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, that's where the, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus went up the large hill, maybe like, kind of like the foothills here might be, and everybody sat down and had the Sermon on the Mount. The Mount of Temptation. Uh, this, again, is the traditional site where Jesus went up the mountain and for 40 days and 40 nights was tempted by Satan on the Mount of Temptation. And one of the temptations that Satan used was, see those stones, turn those into bread. And the rocks up in that area, as you can imagine, were sort of a rustic red, almost looked like small loaves of bread. Uh, very, very much appealing in that sense. If you were really, you know, he hadn't eaten for 40 days and he was human. And that's how Satan tempted, turn those stones into bread. I know you're hungry, turn those into bread. They would have been all over the ground there in that area. And then Mount Zion. Now you're looking at that thinking, whoa, where is the mountain there? <laughs> okay. That is, this is, the, this is the old city of Jerusalem. Or this is the modern and the old city. But over here, you see the walls coming around the old city of Jerusalem. And uh, the city of David, actually, is this area down in here where these buildings are. That's really where the city of David was. Back up behind there in the walled city, right toward the southern end there, is where uh, what the Bible calls Mount Zion. That's where the, the, the temple was built. And it was a very holy place. And throughout the Bible, Mount Zion is very prominent and very important to Israel's history. But you wouldn't necessarily know it going there today, uh, that that's a mountain. Uh, but that is Mount Zion. And then the last one this morning, and actually we're going to consider today together from the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, the Mount of Transfiguration. And uh, this is the traditional site where this account took place, where Jesus was transfigured. And we're going to consider that this morning as we take a few weeks and we're going to talk about the road to the cross and uh, the aftermath of the cross of Calvary as we come toward Easter season. Uh, that, the, uh, the church that was built there on the Mount of um, Transfiguration, uh, like in so many places in the, in the Holy Land in Israel, where um, uh, churches were built, crusader-type churches and so on, were built over these sites. And inside that church, uh, if you go inside, uh, as we've been there, you'll see the, the, uh, the painting uh, in the ceiling of the, uh, of the chapel. And you'll see, of course, this uh, Renaissance or even earlier type of painting of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and of those who were there with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. So if you would open your Bible to Mark chapter 9 this morning, in Mark chapter 9, and um, let's have a word of prayer as we open God's word, would we? Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray that we would hear your words, and our heart would be sensitive to your word today. Uh, Lord, as our children uh, meet with their leaders, uh, both the ones that were here with us earlier and those who were in their early childhood classes, uh, they will be hearing your word today too. 
And Father, we will hear your word tonight when we come back and gather with our, our friend from Jews for Jesus. Uh, Lord, we just thank you that we can listen to your word, we can meditate on it, think about it, and apply it to our lives as we walk with you this week. So we just give this time to you and, and ask you, Holy Spirit, would be present with us in a wonderful and a special way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In Mark chapter 9, um, we have the, the, the account of what's called the, the transfiguration. And this takes place up north in Galilee. But this, as this story will come to its conclusion, we will find Jesus then heading south down toward Jerusalem for what we call the Passion Week, the, the, his death on the cross of Calvary, as we will come and celebrate a week from Friday for Good Friday, as Kevin mentions, our choir will be presenting to us a special musical service that night. We'll also share in communion together. And then, of course, we'll gather on Easter morning to celebrate the resurrection. This account of the Lord's life really takes place up in Galilee, but it sort of wraps up the Galilean ministry in a, in a, in a sense as they're going to begin heading south toward Jerusalem. Jesus' ministry was for three years, um, we think, you know, about the age 30 to 33, that is public ministry that is recorded in the Gospels. And I do want to, um, as we come toward this, uh, you'll, you'll notice that in sort of uh, preparation for this, the Lord Jesus Christ will uh, tell his disciples that, um, that he, is, he is going down uh, to, to Jerusalem to die. And this, this, this passage is kind of bookmarked. You notice in verse 31 of chapter 8, if you back up a little bit, this is up in Galilee. Jesus says, or it says, Mark, incidentally, the gospel of Mark, written by Mark the evangelist, we, we believe, really most Bible teachers believe that this was really Peter's gospel because Mark worked and served with Peter. We know that from Peter's epistles. And so Peter was probably the source material, if you will, for Mark. So this, this is kind of Peter's perspective and, and remembering of the life of Jesus given to Mark, most likely. And, it's, and Mark tells us that Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside, and, and, and he began to rebuke him. Peter began to rebuke Jesus and say, stop talking that way. Quit saying that. Uh, this isn't going to happen. And you know, this is that, that well-known saying where Peter, Jesus turns to him and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And as you go through this account, um, you, you, at the, that's one bookend. The other bookend of the of the Mount of Transfiguration, as at the end of the story, kind of to verse 12, Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected. But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. And then you go to verse of, of chapter 9, you go down to verse um, 30, 31, 32, and that 31 the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him. 
So the story of the transfiguration takes place in the context of Jesus very clearly talking about his death. You know, as we, as we look at this account this morning, I would like to ask if, as much as possible that you could put yourselves into um, this story. These men have been traveling with Jesus for over two years. They have been hearing about the kingdom of God. They have been seeing amazing miracles. I mean, amazing miracles that nobody but the Son of God could do. They have their anticipation and their hopes. As we, as we gather next Sunday and consider Palm Sunday and think of the, the crowds proclaiming him the King and Messiah as the, as the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord, this messianic fervor and this, this hope of deliverance from their enemies and of God finally breaking through into history and, and giving his people victory over their enemies and, and, and setting up the, the, the kingdom that they were looking forward to and hoping for. And, and as Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God in their midst and this anticipation and this hope that is building. And then Jesus talks about being killed and it just, it, this does not register with them. It, this, this can't be. And it's in the midst of this context in verse 2 of chapter 9. And I want you to notice, well, I'm sorry, look at verse 1. And he said to them, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here, some of you standing with me today, right now as I'm talking, he says, you will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with its power. Some of you are standing right here today. You are going to see the kingdom of God before you die. And you're going to see it in its power. And then verse 2, after six days, Jesus took Peter James and John. Now, Peter, James, and John um, are sort of the inner court. They're the inner circle. You know, you have the, you have the 12 disciples. You've got the 72. You've got the plus. You've got, you know, the sort of circles that expand out from the Lord's ministry. The, clo- the ones that were the, the closest that he, he took aside sometimes were Peter, James, and John. These three disciples not that they were more important, but he, he called them to himself as sort of the inner group. And he chose these three men. And he took them with him up to a high mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. I showed you the picture of possibly that was a mountain. Obviously, you know, a mountain they could walk up and they could, they could climb together. He led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. And I want you to notice, after six days... He took them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. It's it's the idea of of a metamorphosis, a a, a change, a a radical change. He was transfigured before them. And look, here's 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 how Peter, I think, described it to Mark. And Mark describes it to us. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Now, if you have the King James this morning, I think, doesn't it say, uh, use the word fuller in there? Huh? Yeah, what's it say? What's it say? Who said that, John? Yeah, so as no fuller on earth could whiten them. Any of you here remember the fuller brush men? <laughs> okay, 
<laughs> Fuller Brushman used to come to my house in Greenwood, and my mother would look forward to his coming, and he'd come in with all of his stuff, and he would bring cleaning products and fullering products, I assume. And, uh, you know, we would sit there, and we could pick out a comb or a shoehorn. Um, and uh, it, was, it was a big event. The Fuller Brushman came to your house. And uh, that's the idea, though, this idea of whitening power. Um, it's not quite as exciting to say the bleach man comes to your house today, I guess, you know. <laughs> Or you go to the store and buy bleach, you know. But this is the idea. They says nobody could, nobody could make these clothes that white on earth. It was dazzling. It was blinding. His, his, he was there and all of a sudden, I mean, these guys go up the hill. They have no idea what's going to happen. And while they're there, all of a sudden, Jesus just changes in front of them. This is the same Jesus they had been walking on these dusty roads with. They're dirty. They're dusty. They're hot. You've been to the, if you've been to Israel... And, you know, it's hot and it's dusty and it's dry. In this particular area, you saw that mountain I put up there. And, and all of a sudden, he just changes. And he's dazzling and he's white as white as white. His clothes are just, are just dazzling, clear and clean and pure and, and blinding, I think we could say. And then, and then all of a sudden, verse 4, there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. I mean, put yourself in, I mean, these men have never seen anything like this. Yes, they've seen miracles. They've seen miracles, but they've seen seen Jesus dressed in his clothes like them, dust and dirt like everybody else. And they've seen him reach out and and touch people and heal people and speak the word. And they've listened to people, and, and they've been there when people have listened to his teaching but they've never seen anything like this. This is amazing. And, and, and can you imagine being there and all of a sudden, if you could see this and, and just see really heaven, if you will, and, and see this dazzling, blinding sight of Jesus. And then Moses and Elijah, two of the greatest Old Testament men, and we'll talk about that in a minute, that are standing there and Jesus and Moses and Elijah are talking together. And they're talking together. And, and Peter, verse 5, Peter speaks up and dares to enter this conversation. I mean, would you break into this conversation if Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking to each other? And, and, and Peter breaks into this conversation, Rabbi, teacher, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then in parentheses, my Bible says, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. <laughs> you know, sometimes Peter gets a lot of criticism for opening his mouth and so on. At least he opened his mouth, you know. At least he was willing to step out of the boat and say, if it's really you, Lord, tell me to come. You know, yeah, he, he was impetuous sometimes. Yeah, he put it out there. But, but uh, that was not always a bad thing. But I'm, you know, there's a lot of questions about this story. I, I, you know, I have, I can't answer. How did he know that was Moses and Elijah? He'd never seen Moses and Elijah, right? How did he know that was Moses and Elijah? But he knew it. And, and I wonder if, I mean, was he standing close enough? Was, was he standing like here, like where Gary and Trainer are, and, and, I'm, and maybe listening to these two, listening to them talk? And all of a sudden he realized this, that's Trainer. <laughs> it's Elijah and it's Moses. You know, and all of a sudden he realizes, maybe he's just standing there listening and realizes this is who it is. 
And he says, this is, Lord, Rabbi, this is so wonderful. Let us build three, three tabernacles. That really, the, the, the word here is the word that comes from the Old Testament and the Aramaic that is a, a tabernacle. Let us build a shelter. And you might be thinking, what is he thinking? Is it, you know, it does say he was, so, he was afraid, he didn't know what to say, so he just, basically he just said what he was thinking. But why was he even thinking about that? What, would you think of that? Would you think of, I mean, if you were standing there with these three, would you think of, of building a shelter for them? Why would you do that? Why would he think of building a shelter or a tabernacle and building three of them? And how, and how long would it take you to build three shelters? What is Peter thinking? Well, you know, it, he doesn't really tell us other than, other than Mark says he was so frightened. And I want to suggest to you, possibly, that what, what Peter is thinking, let me see if you can track this with me. There's a, you know, tonight the, our friend from Jews for Jesus is going to share some of the context of the Old Testament. He's going to talk about one of the festivals actually in the New Testament that connect with the life of our Lord. I think you're going to be interested in hearing this tonight. Well, I know you are, I am. In Leviticus 23, there are several Jewish feast days. Standing there and Jesus and Moses and Elijah are talking together. And they're talking together. And, and Peter, verse 5, Peter speaks up and dares to enter this conversation. I mean, would you break into this conversation if Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking to each other? And, and, and Peter breaks into this conversation, Rabbi, teacher, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then in parentheses, my Bible says, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. <laughs> you know, sometimes Peter gets a lot of criticism for opening his mouth and so on. At least he opened his mouth, you know. At least he was willing to step out of the boat and say, if it's really you, Lord, tell me to come. You know, yeah, he, he was impetuous sometimes. Yeah, he put it out there. But, but uh, that was not always a bad thing. Well, I'm, you know, there's a lot of questions about this story. I, I, you know, I have, I can't answer. How did he know that was Moses and Elijah? He'd never seen Moses and Elijah, right? How did he know that was Moses and Elijah? But he knew it. And, and I wonder if, I mean, was he standing close enough? Was, was he standing like here, like where Gary and Trainer are, and, and, I'm, and maybe listening to these two, listening to them talk? And all of a sudden he realized this, it's trainer. <laughs> it's Elijah and it's Moses. You know, and all of a sudden he realizes, maybe he's just standing there listening and realizes this is who it is. And he says, this is, Lord, Rabbi, this is so wonderful. Let us build three, three tabernacles. That really, the, the, the word here is the word that comes from the Old Testament and the Aramaic that is a, a tabernacle. Let us build a shelter. And you might be thinking, what is he thinking? Is it, you know, it does say he was, so, he was afraid, he didn't know what to say, so he just, basically he just said what he was thinking. But why was he even thinking about that? What, would you think of that? Would you think of, I mean, if you were standing there with these three, would you think of, of building a shelter for them? Why would you do that? Why would he think of building a shelter or a tabernacle and building three of them? And how, and how long would it take you to build three shelters. What is Peter thinking? Well, you know, it, he doesn't really tell us other than, other than Mark says he was so frightened. 
And I want to suggest to you, possibly, that what, what Peter is thinking, let me see if you can track this with me. There's, a, you know, tonight the, our friend from Jews for Jesus is going to share some of the context of the Old Testament. He's going to talk about one of the festivals actually in the New Testament that connect with the life of our Lord. I think you're going to be interested in hearing this tonight. Well, I know you are, I am. In Leviticus 23, there are several Jewish feast days. Some you, you know, Passover, Yom Kippur, you know, the Day of Atonement. There are these different feast days. And among those feast days is one of the feasts that's called the Feast of Tabernacles, or referred to as the Feast of Booths. Our first trip to Israel in 1985, uh, we were leaving Jerusalem on the day that this, this um, festival started. And sure enough, even today, among either religious Jews or even, you know, Reformed Jews will practice to some extent. We could see on the, on the top of the buildings as we were leaving, these little, they were just makeshift type shell with like palm fronds type, you know, leaves and so on, just, just stacked on top, a quick temporary shelter. And they, and they put these up and it comes from Leviticus chapter 23, where one of the feast days is the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Ingathering, because it has to do with harvest, which was a reminder to them, you can read it in Leviticus 23, it was a reminder to them of their wandering as pilgrims as a temporary uh, location in the Sinai Peninsula, it ended up being 40 years but when they finally were to come to the promised land, God says, when you get there, you are to have this feast where you build temporary shelters to remind you of where you came from and where God has gathered you to today. What's interesting is it's not until the book of Nehemiah that we actually find them actually doing this. And during that time when they came back from captivity to, to, to Palestine, to Israel, and they kept that feast and it says they had kept it really for the first time. They kept it like no other time in their history. It was meaningful to them. The Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what's really interesting to me, and I'm going to, can you put up the passage from Zechariah for me, Cliff? I don't know if you can see, this is a long passage, but this is really interesting. I want you to see if you can track this with me now. The book of Zechariah is right toward the very end of the Old Testament. Zechariah, Malachi. They are books that are really just full. Zechariah is just packed full of prophecies about the coming kingdom and the Messianic kingdom and the Messiah coming to earth. This is the last chapter of Malachi, uh, Zechariah. And, and in the very end of Zechariah, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. I mean, of all the feasts, this is the one that's highlighted during the time of coming back for the kingdom when the nations all come with Israel to worship their God. It's the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles that is highlighted. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves on them, and there shall be no rain, there shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations. And at the very end, the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. It's just interesting to me that of all the feast days, the one that is so connected with the Messianic reign of Christ 
the king coming to earth, the Messiah coming, is this feast of tabernacles, of booths, this feast of ingathering, where they are reminded they were once away and now they are home and God is going to provide for them and he is going to rule and reign. Thanks, Cliff. And, I, and so I wonder if in, in this passage here, when it says Peter blurted out, let's build, if this isn't what he's thinking. If, if Peter's not thinking, we're here. I mean, what would you think if you were Peter? Here, here all of a sudden, Jesus obviously is more than a human. And here he is talking with two of the key Old Testament men, Elijah and Moses. And Peter is thinking probably what he should be thinking. We're here. The kingdom, it's here. Finally. And we're standing here. Build the tabernacles. Build the little shelters as a reminder. Let's, we're going to be here for a while. Let's build these little reminders of where we were and where we have come from and what God is about to do. Let's build three tabernacles for these men. And then verse 7. A cloud appeared and enveloped them. A, a, a cloud, which in the Old Testament, this would be the, the Shekinah glory. Shekinah in the Hebrew means the, 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 this blinding presence. This cloud swallows them up, all of them. And as they're swallowed up in this cloud, a voice comes from the cloud and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. I want to once again, just to sort of connect you with maybe what they're thinking and what is, is going on in this passage. I want you to look at this, this passage here. Exodus chapter 24, verse 15. You could take time and go back to Exodus yourself and read this section of Exodus. Would you notice this? Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it. How many days? Six days. Did you notice earlier it was after six days they went up the mountain? There's just these kind of connections here. Here's the six days. Here's this cloud that covers them. Here's this glory. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. They traveled for six days, Jesus, and they went up the mountain. On the seventh day, it have to be the seventh day, they hear this voice from God. And, you know, Moses is there. And, and Peter, who grew up with, with the Old Testament, these men knew the Bible. Yes, they were fishermen from Galilee, but they knew the scriptures. They were raised in it. And I'm just wondering if this wouldn't recall this, this whole scene of Moses and the mountain and the cloud and the voice of God after six days and the seventh day of, of, of this happening. And then in Exodus 24, 9 to 11, we all also notice that Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, three men, Moses took three men particularly with him and the other 70 elders. But they kind of go as 70 and then the three go with him and then Moses goes by himself. Moses and three men. And, and they go up there and they saw the God of Israel. Now, I mean, think about this man. What does the Bible say? No man shall see God in what? Now, this is a, this is a conundrum. <laughs> this is sort of a dilemma because the Bible clearly says that. Uh, and, but, it, but it says here, they went up there and they saw the God of Israel. I'll leave it there. I don't know what they saw. But they saw enough that, the, that Moses, who was there, writes it down. They saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. 
And he did not lay his hand on the chief men. And I'm reading from the ESV here. Remember it says, he did not kill them. He did not kill them. But instead, they beheld God and they had a feast. They ate and drank. I don't know how they did this. They saw God and somehow they lived and they saw this heavenly transformation on the Mount of Sinai. And then in uh, the next, in Exodus, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, to bring you to the place I have prepared. Listen to him. It says in Hebrew, listen to him. Listen to this angel and obey his voice. And then finally, the last one I want you to look at is Malachi chapter 4. This is the very last book in the Old Testament. This is Elijah. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb and all Israel, Mount Sinai. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome, what? Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So I've brought these passages to your attention. Thanks, Cliff. To see if you could connect with this Old Testament context of the King, the Messiah, something special, something wonderful. Moses and Elijah, these two men who never appear again together in the Old Testament, but here they are, one representing the presence of God on Mount Sinai, one representing the coming of the, of the day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord. And there they are with Jesus, and the cloud envelops them, and they hear the voice, this is my son, listen to him. Listen to him. Just as God told Moses, I will send my angel before you. Listen to him. Listen carefully to him. And in verse 8 of chapter Mark, just as fast as it happened, suddenly they looked around and they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. The kingdom didn't come, God didn't break forth. As fast as it happened, they never built the booths, the tabernacles. It was over. And here they are standing there, and, and, and they're standing there, and Moses and Elijah are gone, and there's Jesus. And he's wearing the same clothes they went up there in, the same dusty, dirty clothes they walked up in from walking up this dusty trail. He looks just like he looked before, and it's, it's all the same as it was. It's all over. And they head back down. And as they were coming down the mountain, verse 9, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone. This is a whole other study, you know, the Messianic secret. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And they just, you know, these men, you know, we use the, we use the phrase, they trying to wrap your mind around something. Can you imagine what's going through? We just saw him in his glory. Who could touch him? Who could possibly lay a hand on him? We saw him in his glory. He was changed. He was heavenly. Moses and Elijah were talking to him. Who possibly could touch him? And he says, don't, don't talk about this till I, ri- till I rise from the dead. Dead, dead. What are you talking about dead? Quit talking about being Dead. And they say to him, Lord, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And we read this passage earlier. He says, Elijah did come. 
And we know he connected Elijah with John the Baptist. And that was confusing too, because they asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? He said, no, but he came in the spirit of Elijah. And this, this whole thing is so confusing to these men. And, 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 they, and they go back down the mountain. And that's it. That's it. Story of the transfiguration. That's it. And I, just a question for you. What, what was the story about? What was the story about? Why, is, why did this happen? If it just served to kind of confuse things even more for these disciples, what's the point of this story? Why did God do this? I want to suggest a couple things to you. Number one, this is, this is the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly life, if you will. As this story comes to a close, and at least in the Gospel of Mark, as you move on toward chapter 10, you are going to begin the journey to Jerusalem. From the day Jesus was born, the whole focus of his life was the death on the cross at Calvary for sin. You know, we're going to gather on Good Friday and we're going to do our best as humans to try to enter into the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And our choir is going to help us at least to contemplate it. But we could never contemplate it. We could never understand. We could never grasp what Jesus went through on the cross of Calvary for me. What he suffered, the physical, humiliating, painful death on the cross. But God's judgment against my sin, I'm 61 years old, and so I've had 61 years, all the things that I've collected in my life, the sin in my life, the selfishness, you know, the, the things that, that God hates. That he, he poured out his anger on my sin and your sin and the cross of Calvary. And Jesus somehow bore that pain and that suffering and that punishment for our sin. And I just wonder if God being the kind of God that we know he is, Jesus was fully man and fully God. If, if this wasn't a, a, a brief a brief, whatever, how long it was, of encouragement to Jesus. That Moses and Elijah were there with him. And what were they talking about? I wonder if they were, I would, I just have to think, given the bookends, they were talking about the cross and what was coming. And if Moses and Elijah came to encourage him, to strengthen him, as we find in the Garden of Gethsemane, an angel comes and strengthens him. And just as God has done in your life, at those times in your life, at those critical times where you need it, He is there. He is there. You don't get to taste it. You don't get to try it out ahead of time, but He's, he's there. And I wonder if this just wasn't a time of encouragement for Jesus to prepare Him for the cross at Calvary. And for Peter and James and John, you know, it's an interesting passage in Second Peter. And in chapter 1, it's actually a passage that many of you actually know quite well. But in Second Peter chapter 1, remember, Peter and John, 
and the Apostle Paul left us most of the New Testament epistles. Peter and John saw the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. On the road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus got a vision of the glory of God and heard the voice of Jesus. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, we, we apostles, we apostles, we have not followed cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. And then Peter goes on to talk about the word of God. And he says in verse 20, above all you must understand, no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I think Peter is telling us, listen, we are credible witnesses. When we talk to you, we are talking for God. We were witnesses of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. We are not making this up. This is true. And Saul of Tarsus, as he speaks of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, can say the same thing, that last of all, he was seen by me, but he was seen in his glory. And I wonder if God didn't bring Peter and James and John to this place so they become the credible witnesses and speak for the apostles and all the prophets to say, listen, we are speaking for God. And what that means, friends, is the Bible that you have in your hands that we preach in this pulpit and in our Sunday school classes and right now our children are learning, this is God's word. These men are credible. It's God's word. And this is a credible witness that Peter can say, listen, we were there. We heard his voice. Believe us when we talk to you and tell you and leave you these writings. And finally, in closing, when this whole story is over, you notice in Mark chapter 9 and verse 14, they come down the mountain and they come to the other disciples and they, they come down this mountain and, and what's the first thing that they see? They look off and here's a, here's a crowd around the disciples and they are what? arguing. They're arguing. And the disciples are arguing and the rabbis and scholars are arguing and there's this commotion and this noise and this yelling and arguing and, and Jesus and Peter, James and John come down and, 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 they, and they look at them and Jesus says, what, what are you arguing about? What is it this time? And then you can read on this story yourself of how this man had a brought a son and the disciples couldn't heal him and, and they're, they're all arguing about why they couldn't heal him. And verse 19, Jesus, oh, unbelieving generation, how long do I have to stay with you and put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And he heals him. And you know, the wonderful thing I like about this is, you know, we talk about mountaintop experiences, right? Some of you ladies had a great experience at the women's retreat two weeks ago. I was at a pastor's conference two weeks ago. Some of my fellow pastors there are just going through some really hard stuff and it was, they just, it was just a mountaintop experience to be there and not have to deal with that and just enjoy God's word and God's people. You know, God gives us those experiences every so often, doesn't he? 
But where does most of life take place? Down the road. Down the road. And Jesus and Peter, James and John came down from that mountain. And Jesus said, how long? I'm sure Peter and James and John are thinking, if you could only, if you only knew what we knew. But that's life. And that's where life takes place. Uh, it'd be nice if we could just sit here and fellowship and worship and celebrate uh, all the time. I'd like it. I'm a pastor. You know, I live here. You know, um, I'd love to love you to join me and be here all the time. But this isn't where life takes place, is it? When you leave these doors today, you go back to your homes, back to your neighborhoods, back to that place at work, back to your families, back to your schools, back to your apartments, back to places where life takes place. And sometimes it's kind of discouraging, it's kind of dusty, it's kind of difficult, and it's not like sitting and worshiping God together. But that's where it takes place. And that's where Jesus spent his life. He spent his life on the roads with the people. That's where he spent his life. That's where God's called us. And God has a road for you to walk this week. And however dusty it is, and however much they don't understand, it's where God has called us. As we walk with Jesus to Calvary and consider his love and what he's done for us. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, this is your world. And uh, you've created a beautiful world. And Lord, you've created our world. You've created our families. And well, we just thank you for the gift of life. And Father, today, if there be a person here who uh, does need that just special word of encouragement from you on the mountain today, uh, something really difficult and challenging, Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit will draw close and bring that word of encouragement today. And Lord, as we leave this place and we've enjoyed worshiping and celebrating the resurrection of our Savior each first day of the week. As we leave today, Lord, and uh, there may be somebody at work in our neighborhood or school that uh, just kind of makes the road a little dusty. Uh, there might be some financial issues, relationships. Uh, got some decisions to make. We got uh, parents who are Raising children and day in and day out, doing the best they can. We got caregivers here. Lord, uh, whatever we have before us this week, uh, we just, I want to thank you that uh, you walked on the road with us and that you walk with us and you go with us today and that we can have the confidence that we will be in your presence and we can represent the Lord Jesus Christ and his love, mercy, and grace to those that we encounter on the road. We pray this in Christ our Savior's name. Amen.